If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We are making our way through this series we started about six months ago entitled We See Jesus. Book of Hebrews, we are this morning looking at chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of scripture open and reading along with me. We have a a very difficult passage this morning and one that I think ought to have an enormous impact on the life of anybody who hears what our God is going to say to us this morning. And so I encourage you to have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 10 on page uh, 1007. We're going to look at verses 26 to 39 this morning. And before we do, let's again pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father, there are many weighty and many difficult things in the scriptures. There are many things that that we read and that we are often troubled by, and yet we know that every word that you have that you have spoken is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know, O oh God, that every encouragement and every warning are necessary to our spiritual lives. We pray that you would humble us under your word this morning. We pray that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God to see more clearly our need for his blood, for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, for forgiveness of our sins, for continuance in faith and endurance, in believing and trusting and living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord Jesus, we ask you to be present with us and that your voice would be heard in the preaching of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. There, the writer of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately or willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will come to adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged or perhaps better insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But literally, the just shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures 
forever. Well, in his book, What Happens After I Die, Michael Allen Rogers recounts a story, I think it's a true story, about a princess, a royal princess in, in Great Britain who in the 1950s went to a worship service at a Church of England cathedral. And as the young princess sat through the ser- service, she was troubled by the sermon that she heard, not because of what was said that would cause her any uneasiness, but because of what was not said and that was so clear in the passage on which the bishop was preaching. And after the service, the story goes that the princess uh, went up to the bishop, perhaps in youthful zeal, and she said to him, Bishop, is it true that there's a place called hell? The bishop very promptly responded, Madam, the scriptures say so. Christians have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses so, to which she responded, then why as God's spokesman do you not tell us so? Now, I think it's a very powerful story because I think it's quite possible for you in English-speaking worlds to go into any number of churches and to be in those churches for the majority of your life and never to hear about the reality of eternal judgment and punishment. And I think that that's such a tragedy, not because anybody likes preaching about that, but because on almost every page of Scripture, we're confronted with the reality of eternal judgment. And we're not just confronted with it for those outside of the walls of the church who have not heard or have rejected the gospel for themselves, but we find it most prevalently taught to those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ within the walls of the church, preeminently here in this book, in Peter's epistles, in the book of Jude, and throughout our Lord Jesus' teaching in the days of his flesh. We are confronted with it so that no one could say to the Lord Jesus Christ or the apostles, is there a place called hell? And if there is, why have you not told us? Why have you not warned us if there is such a place called hell? Now, we come this morning to one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible and one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. The the writer has spent an enormous amount of time telling us about the glories of Jesus Christ, the betterness of his sacrifice. He's told us all about... How, how much we need Jesus Christ, how his sacrifice had a definitive once-for-all nature to it, that our sins are washed away in his blood, that everything that you need was accomplished at Calvary. Everything that we need for this life and for the life to come was accomplished when our Lord Jesus groaned under the weight and burden of our sin and the wrath of his Holy Father at the cross for our redemption, and the writer to Hebrews has made it very clear that if you have him, if you're in him by faith, you have everything, you are safe, you are secure, and yet throughout this book, we find these warnings. Now, I think the Bible is very wonderful in that it always gives us this balance of encouragement and warning. Um, I think most ministers would want to only encourage you, only speak encouraging words, especially in our day, I know there are some who thrive on giving the warnings and who are heavy on the warnings, but I think it's important for us to grapple with the fact that the Bible doesn't just give you the nice, wonderful, encouraging things, but it gives you the very hard, the very difficult sayings, the very strong admonitions and warnings, and we would do well to heed them with everything that we have within us. You know, Charles Spurgeon was once asked about the warnings and the promises in the Bible. How do you reconcile, somebody asked Spurgeon, promises, these large promises from God and warnings. And Spurgeon said, ah, 
friends don't need to be reconciled. Friends don't need to be reconciled. Well, notice what the writer's going to do this morning. He's really going to give us two things. First, he's going to warn us of the way of perdition. We've already seen the, the, the warning on apostasy, the compliment passage to this in chapter 6, a very difficult passage. encourage you to go back, listen to that sermon, Hebrews 6, where we're told that it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who had been partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Now, this other very difficult passage where the writer to Hebrews tells them, look, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. And these passages serve sort of as bookends in all that he's told us about what the Lord Jesus has done for us and why it's so important that we cling to him by faith and that we lay aside our sin and that we don't harden our hearts in unbelief. And notice that what he does now, shifting, telling us all these wonderful things we have at the, there in, in, in verse 22 of chapter 10, he's, he's given us two commands, one having to do with our relationship with God, let us draw near because we have Christ within the veil in glory, and then let us not forsake the assembly. So we have the God word command. Our response to what Jesus has done is let's draw near to God. The man word, we need to be in the fellowship actively, not forsaking the assembly. And we looked a little bit last week at if we forsake the assembly as Israel in the wilderness, if you left the assembly, you would wander off and you would die in the wilderness. And that the writer of Hebrews is giving you that illustration and he's calling us to draw near and he's calling us to hold fast and he's calling us not to forsake the assembly. I think the transition, and you're going to have to listen very carefully here, I think the transition from those, those imperatives, those commands, to the warning he gives here works this way. If you are not drawing near to God, you will be drawing away from God. If you are drawing away from God, you will be drawing away from his assembly. If you draw away from his assembly, you will suffer eternal punishment. Now, you may say, wait a minute. You're saying that it's impossible for anybody outside of the assembly to be saved. I'm not saying that. There are rare exceptions. The thief on the cross was not in the assembly. He was on the cross. I think as a norm, the writer of Hebrews is saying is if your habit is to forsake the assembly. Beware, because you will depart from Jesus Christ, because in reality, you've already departed from Jesus Christ. You know, William Still made a very interesting observation I've never thought about before. He said that if you view the church as a baptizing, marrying, and burying society, and that's all you view it as, those three big events, baptism, marriage, and burial, death, those are the big events in your life, that you will never benefit from the purpose of the church here on earth. If that's how you view the church, baptizing, marrying, and burying, that you have no part in the benefit of the church, where God has invested all of the grace of the Lord Jesus, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, that everything necessary, the exhortations, the fellowships, the needs we have for each other, if you are in the habit of forsaking that, this warning is clear this morning. Notice this. We ought to be meeting together. And then he says in verse 26, but if we go on sinning willfully, if you are willingly departing from Jesus because you're uninterested, you're disinterested in the things of Christ, you're disinterested in being in the assembly, you're not here to worship God, you're in a very, very 
very dangerous place. Again, I don't like saying these things, but your eternity rests on me saying these things. Very necessarily. You know, this is the least seeker. I actually believe, I've said this before about other passages, I think this is the least seeker-sensitive passage in the Bible. And I think it's the most important passage in the Bible for everybody in this room. The writer says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean, sinning willfully? Does that mean after I've professed faith in Christ and and I'm, I'm growing in grace and I'm walking with him and I'm a part of a visible church, a local church somewhere, and I'm, I'm exhibiting fruit, and then suddenly I have these times where I'm falling into sin and I can't seem to beat a sin, and I go back to it, and I even go back to it sometimes knowing I shouldn't do this and I do it anyway, and then I shouldn't do it and I do it anyway, and there's an extended period. Is that willful? sin, is that what the writer is saying will bring eternal judgment on you? I don't think necessarily. I think that that can lead to what the writer is saying. I believe with all my heart that can lead to a willful sinning. But I'm going to side here with most of the Puritans who would say that what the writer is saying here is that this is an abandonment of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. These are people who have once trusted him. He'll, he'll tell them here later on. He'll say, look, you had this experience. You, you received the word. You, you, you had compassion on other believers who were in chains for the gospel. You, you joyfully gave up your goods. You suffered some persecution. These were people who had heard the gospel, whose lives have been impacted. And if you turn away, and let me say this. I've said this to you before. The two pastors I've mentioned to you, the one who baptized me, and another dear friend who have both turned away, and another friend in this denomination who has turned away recently. And then this week I spoke to one of my dear friends whose wife was cheating on him through all of their engagement and their marriage, and was going to church with him through the whole thing, speaking like a Christian, stayed in our home, professed to be a Christian, would sit there with biblical conversations and have discussions and she looked at my friend as she left him this week and said I see how what you believe affects every area of your life and I don't get that she is willfully walking away from Jesus Christ she is willfully turning away from her profession of faith in Jesus now let me be clear we've already said in the past if you are elect if you belong to Jesus, if you are one of his sheep, you will hear his voice. You are safe in his hands. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, nobody can snatch me out and snatch you out of my hand. Nobody can snatch you out of my father's hand. My father who sent me is greater than me, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, very clear that all those who are elect will be saved. They will persevere to the end. And what the writer, though, is warning us about is a deliberate, intentional abandonment of any desire to persevere in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that that can happen very complacently in your life. It can happen slowly like a leaky ship. It often does happen like a leaky ship. I want to read to you a quote by Sinclair Ferguson I found so powerful. Um, and notice, let me just say this before I read this. Notice that the writer includes himself 
Notice verse 26. If we go on sinning, the writer puts himself there so that the people understand, as I put myself under these warnings with you, I put myself under these warnings. I take these to heart. As I grapple with these warning passages, I examine my soul to see where I am. Am I persevering in the faith? The Apostle Paul, who who taught the glorious doctrines of assurance of salvation, said, I run, I beat my body into subjection, lest after I have preached to others, I should be disqualified. It's not any uncertainty, but Paul's saying we all take these warnings seriously. And this is what Ferguson says. Listen to this. If I have heard the gospel, but actually live with a spirit of indifference to the gospel, I will die as though I never trusted the gospel, but I will be judged as somebody who has actually rejected the gospel. If I've heard the gospel and live with a spirit of complacency to the gospel, I will die as someone who didn't trust the gospel, but I will be judged as someone who has rejected the gospel. I think that's what the writer's saying here. That, that that can be a very subtle, internal drawing away from God, turning back to the world in the heart. It always starts with the heart. The heart is always what gets led astray. The writer of Hebrews told us that back in, in chapter 3. He said, beware lest any of us harden our hearts in unbelief. Now let me say this, because I understand that there are tender consciences in the church. I love the tender consciences of the church. I love people that have very tender consciences who are easily uh, weighed down unnecessarily because they put themselves in those in positions and they, they worry and they're, they're worrying about their salvation. And I think with the Puritans, we have to say that, that generally, almost always, if you are deeply concerned about whether this has happened to you, it probably hasn't happened to you. And furthermore... I want to focus just briefly with you on this warning about willful, willful sin. You know, in the law, in Leviticus, there were provisions for sacrifices, for sins of ignorance. If you read through the book of Leviticus, you'll see this recurring. If a man's done a sin ignorantly, if a congregation's done a sin ignorantly, if a ruler's done a sin ignorantly, if, if a common person has done a sin ignorantly, then he should go and he should make atonement for that sin. And so there's these sins of ignorance that, that happen. And, and when you read that, you can think, well, wow, I mean, there were many times where I have been presented with a temptation. I knew I shouldn't did it, do it, and I did it anyway. Is that a sin of ignorance? Well, I think that it's instructive that the Apostle Paul says that when he, um, that he was a murderer and a blasphemer, which he did very purposefully toward Christ's sheep, he said, but I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And so Paul had not yet been enlightened. He had not yet tasted the powers of the age to come. He had not yet seen the glories of Jesus in the congregation. I think also it's helpful for us to keep in mind that in Hebrews chapter 5, we're told that the high priest sympathizes with those who have sinful weaknesses because he also is a man of weakness and he knows what it is to go astray. So I want to I do two things here in this warning this morning for you. Number one, I want to say, if you are the, per, the kind of person that is troubled and vexed over whether you have committed this and you are actively seeking to put sin to death in your life and you fall at times and you're going to Christ repenting, that keep doing that. Be encouraged that that's happening in your life. 
Um, you know, I was thinking about the reality of sin in the life of the believer, and it is striking that the three men who wrote the most of the Bible, Moses, David, and Paul, were all murderers, and two of them were murderers post their conversion. Now, that is certainly not a license for you to go kill somebody. As I know you would not take it to be, and I don't even know why I would have to say that, but Moses murdered a man post his conversion. David committed adultery and murdered one of his best friends post his conversion, and Paul was a murderer, and those three men wrote the majority of the Bible. So this is not saying that there are these great sins you could commit that somehow God would say, I am done with you, but there is one great sin you commit in which you are saying to God, I'm done with you, and then God is saying, fine, I'm done with you. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, and that is rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is in your heart saying, in your heart, you may never verbalize it. You may never, ever, ever let on. You may play the game. Judas, isn't it remarkable? It's remarkable that Jesus and Judas were together for three years. And we are not told a hint of what's going on in Judas's heart until Jesus is about to go to the cross. Three years preaching the gospel with the other disciples, working miracles, going out, looking just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, looking just like the others. But what was in Judas's heart was a hatred for Jesus, a rejection of the sacrifice of Jesus, a rejection of the Christ he preached to others. The Bible says that he was greedy, he was a thief, he took what was in the money box. There was a, a heart rejection of Jesus for greed in Judas. I think when John looks back over that, the Apostle John in um, the account of Mary washing Jesus' feet and Judas gets angry, this could have been given to the poor, and he sets out the psychology of Judas's sin and depravity, and he, he shows how sinister and complex it is, that, that John is looking back post-Judas' apostasy, He's looking back, and John's saying, ah, I see it now. I see the manifestations. Judas never verbalized that he didn't trust Jesus. He probably verbalized to everybody that he did trust Jesus. But Judas's heart had departed. He rejected Christ. Now notice this. I want us to look at what the, the willful sin is here in the text. Notice um, in verse 29, we're told it's really three things. One, it's trampling underfoot the Son of God. Two, it is closely related, profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And three, insulting the spirit of grace. It has everything to do with the person and the work of Jesus. It is exclusively bound to what you think about Jesus, what you think about your sin. You know, in each of the cases of the people I've told you about this year that have departed from their profession of faith, in each of them, I can look back the way John looked back at Judas, and I can say, ah, it makes sense. I saw the little indicators, the little signs. They weren't fervent in their conversations about Christ. They, they never prayed fervently with people. They were rejecting the assembly for times. They were letting things go. They talked about culture and music and all kinds of other things. They got excited about all kinds of other things. And they, they had a visible lack of excitement and delight in the things of Jesus Christ. And I can look back and see that. And 
ultimately what the writer's telling us is that in their hearts, they had trampled the blood of the Son of God underfoot. They trampled Christ underfoot. They had rejected him. They said, I don't care who Jesus says he is. I don't care what the Bible says. I will live as I will live. I will choose the world. And in doing so, whether they knowingly do this or not, they are trampling Jesus Christ underfoot. I remember I was at a restaurant working about six or seven years ago, and I sat up at the the countertop of the bar they had one morning as we prepared for work. And I'll never forget a guy who had probably grown up in a church came in, and he was very disrespectful about the things of Christianity purposefully towards me. And I'll never forget the time he took a big, um, it was a, um, a candlestick that looked like a chalice, and he started mocking the blood of Jesus. It would be better for that man to shoot himself in the head than it will be for him on the day of judgment when he faces that Jesus Christ. I want to say that there was, I trembled inside for him. Notice what the writer says. He now draws out the result of going in this way of perdition. Notice what he says. He says, and now he, in verse 27, he says, there's no more sacrifice for sins. There's no way that somebody who has rejected the sacrifice of Jesus can have their sins forgiven because there's no other blood that can forgive their sins. These people are wanting to go back to Judaism, back to the animal sacrifices. If you want to go to anything other than the biblical gospel, you will not have your sins forgiven. There will be no other sacrifice for sins. There is one way. People hate the exclusivity of Jesus. Believers love the exclusivity of Jesus. The apostate depart from the exclusivity of Jesus. There no longer remains, but what does remain, notice this, a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, I don't think that that means that those who have done this sit around gnawing off their fingernails, afraid they're going to go to, I think they don't even think about it. They're oblivious to it. They sigh when they hear warnings. (sighs) I don't want to hear about this. They are oblivious to it, and yet God says what is reserved for them is a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, notice this, that will consume the adversaries. Now, what the writer is going to do is something interesting. Actually, he's going to contrast what happened under the Mosaic law in that period with what happens in the New Covenant, the Old and the New Covenant. And if you go back, and I'm sure you all have read through the Old Testament at times, and you think, wow, this is pretty heavy. You know, somebody touches the ark, they die. Um, Nadab and Abihu, they, they don't carry out the sacrifices as they should, and God roasts them on the spot. And it's been common for people to say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was a terribly awful God, and he was a, a very harsh, and there's more judgment in the New Testament. There's not. Actually, the writer of Hebrews is going to say that the judgment that people get in the New Testament for rejecting Jesus in the New Covenant is worse than it is in the Old Covenant. Notice this, what he does. He says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The law prescribed that if there were two or three witnesses who bore witness to your laying aside, caring not about God's commandments, you suffered the punishment for that. And then he says, notice, and let me say this, all of us have broken God's law in many, 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 many ways, which is why the writer says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot 
counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. It will be worse. Here's why. Let me just say this briefly. Those who rejected the Mosaic law, they were rejecting God through something that was mediated. It was sort of a a roundabout way of rejecting God. Those who reject Jesus are rejecting God immediately. The only sacrifice for sins is God. If you rejected Moses' law, which could never save you, you were rejecting God in a roundabout way. If you reject the Son of God, you are rejecting God immediately. And I think it's interesting. In the law, two or three witnesses would stand against you. In the new covenant, the two or three witnesses are the person of the Son of God who you trample underfoot, the blood that you count a common thing, and the spirit who you insult. Isn't that interesting? That those who you have sinned against are the ones who stand against you on Judgment Day as witness. Now let me say this. I don't think the writer wrote all this so that you would leave this place fearful. I want to say that 